long, and I've been going to Center Church for about a year and seven months. I used to be a kid who really wasn't interested in the future or where my life was going, but more interested in how much fun I could have today. Drank, did drugs. Um, I mean, pretty much anything from a uh, party-like lifestyle. I mean, it was just about the here and the now. The older I got, the less I cared. Um, I feel that by 20 or so, I had really given up on everything and was just living a lifestyle that was like, wake up, drink, party, go to bed. There was a moment when the house of cards really came tumbling down on me. Um, I was in jail for a little while and I, I came to the conclusion that if I couldn't get myself straight then and listen to God and do as he asked me to do, that I would just throw the rest of my life away. So I spent that time praying, reading scripture, um, joining Bible groups, finally got back out, met my wife. We were pointed to Center Church, and we took steps to get out of where we were living, to change the environment, um, to start a new one here in Charlottesville. When I was in jail, people would come there to speak with us and to bring the gospel to us. It was one of the most amazing things in my life, what Jesus did. Thinking about all the things that I do and how unworthy I am, but how he cared so much as to sacrifice himself knowing how unworthy we are. It's amazing to know that we have a God that even though we could never measure up to or come anywhere near close to, cares so much for us that as far away as we walk from him, he's willing to always reach out to us. Well, hey, can we put our hands together for what God's done in Trey's life? Um, hey, welcome to Center Church. Happy Easter. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new, that video is really the bullseye for us. Uh, that's really what we're after as a church. We're about seeing lives changed by the power of Jesus Christ. And man, we believe that what happened in Trey's life, man, can happen in your life today because Jesus is not in the tomb, but he has risen indeed. And so that's why Easter is a good day. That's, a, that's why we celebrate on Easter. That's why we clap on Easter, man, because Jesus has done what we could never do. And that is good news. Um, I also know on Easter that there's lots of different kinds of people in the room, so we're really grateful for that. Um, some of you are church people, okay? Like, you're here every week. You served in the kids' ministry at the 8 a.m. service. Like, you're awesome, okay? Really glad that you're here. Uh, some of you are shaking your head. You've got your shirts on, I can tell. Uh, I love the uh, center kids with a blazer over it. That's my favorite look. Uh, that's a great look. Um, others of you are not really church people, so you didn't grow up uh, with a church background. Um, you don't usually go to church, but you're here because may maybe somebody invited you. Maybe just you saw it online. You just felt like, hey, I, I want to try this out. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we know you're probably a little bit 
nervous, we'll try not to make you feel weird, okay? Uh, and then third group of folks, maybe you were involved in church at some point, but you haven't been for a while. And there's a lot of reasons why that might be, right? Maybe you had a bad experience, that, that happens. Uh, maybe you just got busy and got disconnected. Um, whatever the case may be, we are glad that you're here with us this morning. And I think no matter what group you would identify with, I think the sermon's gonna be relevant because what we're talking about today is fear, Okay, we're talking about fear. And here's what we all know. Fear is a universal human experience, right? We all know what it is to be afraid. Um, and even if you don't think of yourself as like a very fearful person, even if you're like, I'm not afraid of anything, Josh, you know? Uh, fear is actually underneath of a lot of our most difficult emotions and most problematic behaviors. So let me ask you a question. Um, man, do you ever struggle with anger or with anxiety? Right, uh, do you ever stress about money? Right, have you, uh, do you have a tendency to be controlling? Right, any mother-in-laws in the room? And never mind, that's a bad joke. Uh, do, you, uh, do you struggle with, uh, you ever struggle with comparison? Uh, do you ever struggle overly concerned with what other people think about you? Right, well, you might be surprised to learn that the Bible would say fear is actually underneath of all of those emotions and all of those feelings. And so the truth is, whether you consider yourself a fearful person or not, man, we've all felt and we've all wrestled with fear and its implications in our lives. So we're talking about fear today, but you might ask the question, why are we talking about fear on Easter, right? Like, this seems like a weird thing to talk about on Easter. It's supposed to be a happy, a happy day, a day where we celebrate. Well, the reason is this. The phrase, do not be afraid, comes up repeatedly in the Easter story. So let me give you some examples. Uh, when the women go to the tomb and find it empty, the very first thing the angel said to them was, do not be afraid. A few verses later, Jesus, the resurrected Lord, appears to those same women. The very first thing he says to them, do not be afraid. Later that day, when Jesus appears to his disciples who are hiding for fear in the upper room, very first thing he says to them, do not be afraid. So apparently there is some connection between the resurrection of Jesus and the phrase, do not be afraid. All right, so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna learn kind of one big idea from Matthew chapter 28. So if you have a Bible, you can meet me there, Matthew 28, one through 10. Here's the big idea of the whole text. If the resurrection is true, you don't have to be afraid. If the resurrection is true, you don't have to be afraid. You may still choose to be afraid. You may not walk in the reality of the resurrection like I often fail to do. But if the resurrection is true, man, it has opened a way for us to be fearless and to live with great courage because what Jesus has done. Or put it this way, if Jesus died for your sins and rose again, if he is a risen and reigning savior who is at the right hand of the Father, watching over you and interceding for you, if his promises are true and if his word is steadfast, then no matter what you walk through in life, you don't have to be afraid because the one who walked out of the tomb walks by your side. Okay, that is what Matthew is saying in this passage. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna walk through the text verse by verse, and then at the end, I'm just gonna try to apply it to a couple of areas of fear in our lives, all right? So to understand what's going on in Matthew 28, you need a little bit of context about Holy Week, okay? What happened in the week leading up to, man, this moment? Well, on Thursday night, Jesus was betrayed by his friend Judas into the hands of the religious leaders. Early Friday morning, he stood before a religious council that falsely condemned him. They then took him to the Roman governor, Pilate, who also falsely condemned him to be crucified. At 9 a.m. that day, he was nailed into a Roman cross and he was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem next to a major thoroughfare. At 12 p.m., a great darkness covered the entire earth. And then at 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, it is finished, and then yielded up his spirit to death. At some point between 3 p.m. and dusk, a man named Joseph of Arimathea received permission to take Jesus' body off of the cross and bury it in a nearby tomb, which he did just before sunset on Friday. 
On Saturday, Jesus' enemies received permission to set a guard at the tomb. They wanted to make sure that none of his disciples stole the body and then told everyone that in fact, Jesus had been resurrected when he had not been. And so they had multiple Roman guards stationed at the tomb. These were highly trained, highly motivated men. They were highly trained Roman soldiers. And if they failed in their duty, they could be court-martialed and executed. And so they were highly motivated. So Saturday ended with the tomb guarded and sealed by Roman soldiers. That leads us to verse one of chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Saturday was the Jewish Sabbath. It was the day that they set apart as holy. It was the day that they gathered to worship in the synagogue. It was the day that they looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. Sunday meant nothing to them, okay? Sunday wasn't special, it wasn't spiritual, it wasn't sacred, it was a work day. So the equivalent for us today, when it says dawn of the first day of the week would be first thing Monday morning. Can you think of a worse time to do anything, right? Than first thing Monday morning, but that's what it was for them. Sunday was not special to them. If you were a Jew, when would you expect Jesus to rise from the dead? On, on Saturday, on the Sabbath, on the special holy day, and yet he didn't. Instead, Jesus rose toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Why? Because in the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus was ushering in a new way of relating to God. He was ushering in a new week in redemptive history. You see, the old way of relating to God was about continual sacrifices being made in a holy place called the temple by holy men called the priesthood. But in the resurrection of Jesus, he changed everything. Now it's not about continual sacrifices that you and I make to try to be worthy enough for God. It's about the one perfect sacrifice that Jesus made, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is now our temple. He is now our great high priest who ever lives to intercede for us. And so my question is, are you living in the new week or are you living in last week? Are you living in the new week of grace where you relate to God through Christ or are you living in the old week of law where you try to relate to God through your moral performance and being good enough? And I would suggest to you that so many of us who've been following Jesus for years still live like it's last week. Man, we still live like God loves us more when we have our quiet time. And God loves us more when we're really good spouses and we're really good parents. And God loves us more when we repent of sin and put those things to death. That is old week living. That is last week living. And what Jesus did in the resurrection is he brought in a new week of redemptive history and he's holding out his hand and he's inviting you into it. He changed everything when he rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Now we're told that there are two women there, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the, and then the other Mary. Hard to be the other Mary, right? Like that's, that's tough. Oh, great. Oh, you're just the other Mary, right? Um, not surprisingly, we don't know that much about the other Mary. That's why I watch his name that. Uh, but we know a lot about Mary Magdalene. So she's named 12 times in the gospels, which is more than most of the apostles. And here's what we know. Here's what evidence suggests that she came from a wealthy and powerful family, that, that she had a lot of influence, that she had a lot of, um, had a lot of wealth, uh, and then somehow, we don't know how, she came to be possessed by evil spirits. So she, so she had an incredible fall. I mean, from power and beauty and wealth and influence to absolute spiritual and emotional bondage. Man, that, that was her life. We don't know how it happened. We, we don't know if it was something she did. We don't know if it was something that was done to her. We don't know if it was just, man, the brokenness of the world. Um, but some of you can probably relate with Mary Magdalene. It's like there was a moment where you felt like, man, life was going well for you. The plan was, was going well. Everything was happening how you wanted it to happen and then everything changed. Maybe it was when your parents said divorced. Maybe it was when the doctor said cancer. Maybe it was when you had that mental health crisis that you just haven't recovered from, right? Mary Magdalene had it all and then she fell and she was in total bondage until one day when she met Jesus. 
And what Jesus did is he saw her on the periphery. He saw her on the margins. He saw her in suffering. He saw her in brokenness and he set her free. He cast the spirits out of her and he restored her and he gave her a new lease on life. Man, and in response, she followed him. She followed him from Galilee and she even used some of her family's wealth to support his ministry financially. So she follows him all the way down to Jerusalem. And in this instance, she demonstrates an enormous amount of courage. Because let me ask you, who isn't at the tomb that morning? Everybody else. No Peter, no James, no John, all the people that the churches are named after, not there. Mary's like, can I got a church named after me? You know, like, she's there. She and the other Mary have enough courage to publicly identify with this crucified rabbi. And first thing at dawn, they go to pay their respects at the tomb. Here's something you've gotta understand about the ministry of Jesus. The way that he elevated the status and significance of women was scandalous. It was scandalous. In Roman society, Greek society, Jewish society that day, women were considered less than men, less intelligent, less, less apt. They were relegated to marginal roles in society. Their, their testimony wasn't admissible in court. That is what society in general thought about women. And Jesus came along and said, that's not true. And Jesus elevated the significance and the status of women in his ministry. And it's important to note that the first people that he appeared to, the first people that interacted with the resurrection Lord Jesus were two women. It wasn't powerful men in a back room who got the message and shared it with the women. It was courageous women at an empty tomb who got the message and took it to the men. Okay, Jesus' ministry among men and women demonstrated that they were equal in value, dignity, and worth. And so Mary Magdalene and Mary, the other Mary, get to interact with him first. Verse two, and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. God's enemies did everything they could to stop his plan. They crucified his Messiah. They buried him in a tomb. They closed it with the stone and they set a Roman guard. And yet when God was ready to raise Jesus from the dead, he did it whenever he wanted and however he wanted. He just sent an angel. The angel rolled the stone away. The Roman guards fell down like dead men. And I love what it said. The angel sat on the stone. What's that about? I've got this image of like my kids kicking their legs on the, you know, like I was just saying. It's like, that's how easy it was for this angel to overcome all of God's enemies. Here's why that's important for you. We all have Roman guards in our lives, don't we? We all have things that seem insurmountable. It's like my marriage seems insurmountable. This addiction seems insurmountable. Man, my struggle with purity seems insurmountable. Our financial position seems insurmountable. There's nothing that I can do. Guys, God loves to demonstrate his greatness in the world by overcoming insurmountable odds. That's what he did in the resurrection. He was like, do your worst and I'm just gonna overcome it because that's who God is. There is no Roman guard in your life that God cannot overcome. Man, and he loves to overcome insurmountable odds to show that he alone is God, man, and he can change lives. And Trey's story from earlier is a testimony to that. Man, it is just as easy for, for God to do that in someone's life like Trey as it was for him to roll this stone away. Verse five, but the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. That phrase is gonna come up a lot. Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Okay, we need to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus for a little bit because there is no resurrection without the crucifixion, right? There is no Easter Sunday without Good Friday. To understand the significance of the resurrection of Jesus, you have to understand the significance of the crucifixion of Jesus. And one of the things that I want you to see in your, in your mind and I want you to feel with your heart is that the crucifixion was God's plan. It was God's plan. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 21. 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That phrase, must go, means it was necessary, it had to happen. Why did Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem? Knowing that suffering and slander and death awaited him because it was the plan of God to save his people from their sins. Guys, the cross was not a tragic accident. It was the execution of God's plan. Think about what that means about the heart of God towards you. Think about it. Think about what that means about the heart of God towards you. We're so used to saying the cross, the cross, the cross. Stop, think. It's one thing to, to go through unexpected suffering, right? That's hard enough. It's a whole nother thing to go through suffering intentionally. Why would you ever go through suffering intentionally? Why would you do that? Only if there was some reward on the other side that made it worth it, right? So we got parents in the room, anybody got a college savings account? You know what I'm talking about? Hands up in the air, Virginia 529. What is that? Intentional suffering. That's what that is. Every paycheck, you're like, I am going to sacrifice from my paycheck so that one day, man, my children can be blessed. And the rate things are going, the suffering's gonna get worse and worse, okay? Like, it's just getting bigger and bigger. You sacrifice in the moment because you care so much about your kids. Think about a family that immigrates to a new country. What would motivate someone to do that? Man, to leave everything they've ever known, to leave their home culture, their home language, their status in the community, and to go to a whole new place. And to go through the, the challenge and the suffering, the tribulation of learning a new language, a new culture, and trying to start completely over. Why would someone do that? Well, if you talk to someone who's done it, they'll usually say, so that my kids can have a better life. They say, I'm willing to sacrifice my life, sacrifice everything that I hold dear so that my sacrifice can be the soil in which my kids grow and flourish and have a better life. That is why you immigrate to a new country. So let me ask you, what did Jesus do? He looked down the corridor of history and he saw suffering and he saw struggle and he saw misunderstanding. He saw weariness, he saw toil and he saw strife. He saw betrayal, injustice and torture. He saw death on a Roman cross and yet he came to earth. Why? Because he also saw you. He also saw you, and the book of Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, because he knew that that was how he could get you. He said to himself, my sacrifice will be the soil in which your life can be different. My sacrifice will be the soil in which you can have abundant life now and eternal life in the future. Guys, the cross is a resounding declaration of God's love for you. It is a resounding declaration of God's love for you. Do you know what Satan wants to do in your life? He wants you to measure God's love for you by your circumstances. Your circumstances do not dictate God's love. The cross dictates God's love. Romans 5.8 says this, God demonstrates, shows, proves, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can, hear me today, God doesn't love a future version of you. He doesn't love you when you get your act together. He doesn't love you when you finally get back in church and you get this relationships under control and all these things you've been trying to work on finally get worked on. He doesn't love future you, he loves present you with all of your problems and all of your failures and all of your sin. Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't measure the love of God in our lives by looking around, we measure the love of God by looking at the cross. Maybe you came here this morning and you just need to hear your circumstances don't mean God's abandoned you. Your circumstances don't mean God is mad at you. 
The cross demonstrates once and for all that God loves you with an indescribable, almost incomprehensible love that he was willing to give up Jesus Christ so that you could be saved. Verse six, he is not here, said the angel, for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Jesus repeatedly told his disciples this was gonna happen. Okay, I read you Matthew 16. I could give you half a dozen other references, right? He was like, all right, guys, come on. Here's what's gonna happen. And they'd be like, huh? And then he'd be like, okay, and then he'd move on. Right, so like if I'm the angel, aren't you a little surprised there aren't more people here? Right, you're like, why are there three women? You know, like where are all the apostles? Right, you would think that the apostles would be at the tomb before dawn going five, four, three, you know what I'm talking about? Like, here he comes, you know, <laughs> nothing. I mean, they're not, they're probably not out of bed. You know, like what happened? Well, I, it doesn't tell us, but I think what happened is the apostles let the, their fear of their circumstances make them forget the promises of their savior. I think that's what happened. Ever happened to you? Oh, it happens to me all the time. It's like when I keep my eyes on Jesus and what he's promised me and how faithful he is to me, man, I'm at peace. But when I start looking all around at all the things that could go wrong or have gone wrong or what I'm gonna need and what I don't have and, and what if this and what if that, man, I just get filled with anxiety and fear, right? The disciples took their eyes off of Christ. They put it on their circumstances, man. And, and so they forgot his promises and they weren't there in the morning, man, to be greeted by this angel. Now, there were some women there though, the courageous women, Mary and the other Mary, and the angel said to them something very important. Pick, the, pick this up. He didn't just say, he is risen, don't be afraid. He said, come and see. He said, he's not here, he's risen. Come in and see the evidence for yourselves. You see, one of the things people often miss is that the stone wasn't rolled away for Jesus. The stone was rolled away for us. Think about it. Jesus wasn't in there when they went in there, right? It's not like he was on the inside waiting for somebody to unlock the door, you know? It's like... Oh, how long is this gonna, you know, like he's not there. He obviously didn't need the stone rolled away to get out of the tomb. So why was the stone rolled away? So that the women and later Peter and John could go in and see the historical evidence for themselves. You see guys, Christianity is not based on myth, on legend or on allegory. Christianity is based on the historical claim that a man died on a cross, was buried for three days and then historically and objectively rose again. You can reject that claim. You can reject that claim, but you can't understand Christianity without that claim. There is no Christianity in which you reject that claim. Either it happened or it didn't. And that sort of is the line between which we are divided. And so what the angel said is, hey, don't take my word for it. Come in and see the evidence for yourself. Did you know that after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to over 500 people in a 50-day period? 50 days is a long, that's like from now until May 15th, you know, like that's like a long time from now, right? Jesus appeared over a 50 day period and he did very normal things with the people he appeared to. One time he ate fish with them. One time he cooked breakfast for them. We don't know what he cooked. We know it wasn't kale, okay? We know that for sure. But man, he just did like normal stuff. Why? Because he was showing them, I'm not a myth. I'm not a, I'm not a ghost. I'm not some sort of idea of hallucination. Man, I'm, I'm a risen reigning savior. I'm, I have a body because this actually happened. Now, there are four facts that all historians agree on. I was a history major in college. Four facts, believers and skeptics all agree on these four facts about this story, okay, from history. Here they are. Number one, Jesus was a real man who lived and died on a Roman cross. Number two, three days after he died, his tomb was empty. Number three, Jesus' disciples preached that the resurrection occurred. Number four, the early church experienced explosive growth, okay? Everybody agrees on that as facts of history. How you explain that data 
has vast implications for your life. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, it changes everything. And, and it calls for a response. But if he didn't, you can just take Christianity and throw it on the dustbin of history. So let me give you the five main ways that people have explained that evidence over the years, the five theories, okay? Here's number one, the wrong tomb theory. The wrong tomb theory. The hopeless disciples went to the wrong tomb. They didn't get directions. They found it empty and assumed that Jesus was resurrected. But if that were true, the opponents of Christianity, of which there were many, would have just gone to the right tomb, gotten the body, and been like, nope, he's dead, he's right here. So that's not a very reasonable explanation. Okay, here's, here's number two, the hallucination theory. The disciples didn't actually see Jesus, they just hallucinated. They thought they saw Jesus, and then they went out and proclaimed that he had risen from the dead. Uh, now, do hallucinations happen? Yeah. Are hallucinations more common among people that have gone through an emotionally traumatic experience? Yeah, they are. Do hallucinations happen to whole groups repeatedly over a 50-day period? They don't. There is zero scientific evidence that group hallucination has ever happened, right? And so it's just not a very reasonable way to explain this data. Here's number three, the swoon theory, the swoon theory. Um, Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just passed out. And when he was placed in the tomb, the cold of the tomb revived him. He woke up, he ripped 75 pounds of embalming uh, linen off of his body. He kicked open the door of the tomb, defeated the two Roman guards, went and found his disciples, convinced them he was resurrected and then died from his injuries. I mean, honestly, just saying that out loud, you're like, that's not reasonable, right? So swoon theory, not reasonable. Here's number four. And this is the one that you'll hear the most in our, in our culture today. This is the, probably the most believed. It's called the hoax theory. And you'll see this on the History Channel, the Discovery Channel. You'll often hear this in like a religious studies class if you take that in school. Um, so here's the hoax theory. The disciples made it all up. They made it all up. Whether they did it intentionally or it was sort of this myth that developed over time, the disciples made it all up. They got behind the guards, man, they moved the stone, they stole the body, they buried it somewhere, and then they went around proclaiming that Jesus was resurrected. Um, and this, this theory really resonates with the spirit of our age because we've all seen fake news, right? Like we've all seen people lie and come up with hoaxes. We've seen pyramid schemes come crashing down. I mean, I mean, we've all seen this happen. So we're like, oh yeah, well, maybe that's, maybe that's what it was. But let's think about this more deeply. Why does a person create a hoax in the first place? Like, why would you do that? Well, you do it to benefit yourself, right? To gain money or power or access or influence. But proclaiming Christ didn't benefit the disciples at all. It cost them everything. I mean, they lost their jobs. They lost their homes. They lost their families. They lost their lives. Would you propagate a hoax that lost you your job? What if it lost you your house? What if it puts your kids in imminent danger? Would you keep propagating that hoax? I wouldn't. And yet every single one of the disciples went to their death proclaiming that the resurrection is not something they believed in. The resurrection is something that they saw and touched and experienced. Now, one scholar put it this way, those who claimed to have seen Jesus alive from the dead were so sure that they devoted their lives to proclaiming what they had seen and some died for it. Clearly, their testimony was not fabricated. Which leads to the fifth way that the evidence has been explained throughout history. It happened, that it happened. I mean, think about how the disciples were transformed from cowards into courageous preachers and church planners. Think about the fact that Jesus' own mother and brothers worshiped him. What would it take for you to worship your kid as God? A lot, a lot, right? Think about the supernatural growth, diversity, and longevity of the church. Here we all are, 2,000 years later, talking about Jesus on a different continent in a different language, right? Can, you, can we just stop and think about how 
supernatural all this is? Like, if, if Jesus was just a guy, like if he was just a penniless preacher from Galilee that said some interesting moral things, why is he so influential? Why is he the most influential person who's ever lived? There have been more books written about him, paintings painted of him, songs sung to him than anyone else in history. It's not even close. The calendar is divided by the man's birthday, right? Like why, like why, if he was just like a guy, like it just doesn't make sense when you look at history. I mean, to come up with some theory where it was just all this hoax and somehow that hoax is held up for 2000 years and produced all the things that it's, it's just not reasonable. And the most reasonable explanation of the empty tomb and of the data of history is that Jesus rose from the dead as the church has always proclaimed that he factually did. Christianity has always been a thinking faith. It is not an invitation to check your mind at the door. That is why the angel said to the women, hey, come and see the evidence for yourselves. Verse seven, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, something very bizarre is about to happen. Jesus met them. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. So as the women left the tomb, the resurrected Lord Jesus met them. And he greeted them with, with a Greek word, Cairo, Cairo. And it's a happy word. It's a word that means, man, be glad, rejoice, or greetings. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's used to describe weddings and heaven. Here's what I want you to get in your mind and heart. The last thing that happened before Jesus died was all of his disciples abandoned him. They all denied him. They didn't show any courage under pressure. They weren't there for him when he needed the most. And yet, the very first word that he spoke to them in his resurrection was not a word of correction, it was a word of comfort. Rejoice, be glad. One of the things that I've learned in pastoral ministry is that how you, how you view the tone of God's voice in your life matters a lot. So I grew up um, like in a stable home with parents who, man, loved me really well. And so it's, I've just never had a hard time believing that God loves me and that he's my heavenly father. Even when I fail in sin, I, that's just never been a, a problem for me. I have lots of other issues, but that's not, that's not one of them. But one of the things I've learned in 10 years of pastoral ministry is that's a real struggle for some people. It might be for you. Man, to believe that when you fail and when you sin, God isn't angry. He's not, he's not waiting for you to perform penance before he'll receive your prayers again, but that he speaks a word of comfort in your life. I knew a young adult who uh, told me that when she came to faith in Christ, the way she read the Bible changed. She said, it's not that the words changed, it's that the tone that I attributed to God's voice changed. She said, no longer was it the tone of a, a disappointed taskmaster, but it was the tone of a loving heavenly father and a good shepherd who cares for me. So I don't know what tone you attribute to the word of God in your life, but I hope it's a tone like Cairo. Hey, I've overcome. Man, I still love you in your failures and we're gonna work on this together. Verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. There's that phrase again. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. These women had two almost identical conversations. Did you notice that? They talked to the angel. He says, do not be afraid. Go and tell the disciples. Talks to Jesus. He says, do not be afraid. Go and tell the disciples. Comfort and then commission. Comfort and then commission. And that's a pretty good paradigm for the Christian life. You see, what Jesus does is he wants to draw you in and then he wants to send you out. There's examples all throughout the scripture of God doing this. He, he comforts Moses in Midian. He says, your life's not over. And then he sends him to Pharaoh. 
Then he comforts Gideon in a wine press when he's hiding from the Philistines. He said, hey, I'm gonna turn you into a mighty man of valor. And then he sends him out. I think about Ruth, he comforts her. He gives her a husband and she's an immigrant uh, widow without any sort of rights or protection. He gives her a husband, he comforts her. And then he brings the Davidic line through her. Man, what God wants to do in your life is he wants to draw you in. He wants to show you his love. He wants to forgive you of your sins. And then he wants to send you out as his vessel meant to proclaim that good news to others, just like he did with these women's lives. Comfort and then commission. So here's the big point that Matthew is making. Here's the summary. Because the resurrection is true, you don't have to be afraid. Just like those women didn't have to be afraid then, if the resurrection is true, and because the resurrection is true, we don't have to be afraid. If Jesus has overcome the grave, that means he's also overcome your sin and he will be with you no matter what you walk through. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna take that truth and I wanna apply it to a couple areas of our lives. Because it's one thing to nod our heads and believe that. It's a whole other thing to walk out of here and have it change, man, our attitudes and our outlooks and our actions in the week. So let me give you three ways that that impacts our life. Here's number one. Because the resurrection is true, you don't have to fear the past. You don't have to fear the past. Mary Magdalene had a past. The apostle Peter had a past. I mean, Peter did not even knowing Jesus, but in verse 10, Jesus refers to him as my brother. You see, Jesus gave Mary and Peter full assurance that their past was buried with his death. Because the resurrection is true, you don't have to be defined by the worst thing that you've ever done. You don't have to be defined by what's been done to you. As Psalm 103 says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how long it's been since you've cared at all about God. The church of Jesus Christ is a place for second chances, new beginnings, and fresh starts. A new week has begun in redemptive history and Jesus is standing, holding out his hand, inviting you to step into it. He's saying you don't have to be defined by what you've done. You don't have to be defined by what's been done to you. You can be defined by my sacrifice in your place. Because the resurrection is true, you don't have to fear the past. Number two, because the resurrection is true, you don't have to fear the future. You don't have to fear the future. Man, we fear the future. We get filled with anxiety and worry and fretfulness and stress about the future when we view it devoid of the grace and presence of God. And we look at all the needs we're gonna have and we look at all the problems we're gonna have and we look at all the obstacles we're gonna face and we do it without remembering that the grace of God and the presence of God will be with us in the future just like he has been in the past. And this is what we think. But what if I lose my job? Man, the company just got acquired. What if I lose my job? Man, what, what if I'm single forever? What if I never get married? What if my chronic pain never goes away? Now, what if my spouse's cancer comes back? The, the truth of the scriptures is that this world is a broken place and that you will walk through seasons of great suffering and trial. As Psalm 23 says, you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But here's a question. Why does Psalm 23 say that you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death? What does that mean? Well, about 70 years ago, uh, there was a pastor in Philadelphia named Donald Barnhouse. He was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian uh, in Philadelphia. And tragically, his wife died unexpectedly when she was young and when their children were really young. And he tells a story of when he was driving with his kids in the car to go preach at the funeral of his wife. And he stopped at a, a stoplight and apparently his son had been thinking about Psalm 23. Maybe somebody had encouraged him with it. And he said, dad, what is, what is the valley of the shadow of death? What does that mean? Well, there was a huge truck at the stoplight next to them and it was casting this shadow on the hill that they were next to. And so Barnhouse asked his son, he said, son, would, would you rather get hit by that truck or by its shadow? 
And his son said, well, I mean, the shadow, because man, the shadow can't really, can't really hurt you. And Barnhouse replied, man, death is a truck, but its shadow is all that ever touches the Christian. The truck ran over Jesus at Calvary, but only the shadow has passed over your mother. Friends, you're, you're gonna walk through some valleys. And we're all, gonna, we're all gonna face mortality one day. You might be in one right now. You might be in a hard season right now. But because Jesus died and rose again, if your faith is in him, you will only ever face the shadow of death. And you'll never face it alone because your good shepherd walks with you through the valley. So because the resurrection is true, we don't have to fear the future no matter what it holds. Number three, because the resurrection is true, you don't have to fear the wrath of God. The wrath of God is God's retributive justice against sin. So because God is holy and just, he will pay out perfect justice for every sin. And that's good news for the world, it is. Because that means that one day the oppressed will be delivered, victims will be vindicated, and the wicked will be brought to justice. But that's bad news for us. Because we all know that the line of good and evil runs right through the middle of each of our hearts. The truth is we are all part victim and part villain. Romans chapter three says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Who could stand before him? And the answer is no one. Not one of us could stand. Which is why propitiation is so important. Propitiation is a theological word that means a payment that satisfies. And on the cross, Jesus offered himself as a propitiation for our sin. That's what he was doing. 1 John 4.10 says this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. On the cross, when Jesus pushed up on his nail-pierced hands and cried out, it is finished, what he was declaring was that propitiation had been made. And that as Romans 8.1 says, if you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. And that's really important for you to hear. Because you might be here, you may have been sober for months, and this week you relapsed. Maybe this weekend you went back to that website, said you were never gonna do it again, and there you go. Maybe you're here and you're ashamed, you're just ashamed by how overwhelmed you are as a parent. And you're like, I look around at all the other moms and dads and they seem to love being a parent, they seem to be so good at it, and I, I don't feel like I've been happy since I've had kids, like it just stresses me out, and I'm ashamed to tell anybody that. Uh, maybe you're in a cycle of, of binging and purging. You just can't get out of it. You're going through some sort of mental health crisis. Maybe you just, man, got out of a divorce and you feel like, I'm just, just damaged goods now. The scriptures tell us that we have an enemy and that that enemy's chief weapon is called accusation. And that he comes into our lives and he says, God could never love you. He loves other people, but he doesn't love you. Not with what you've done. Not after you've made all those promises and, and backed out. God doesn't love you anymore. But Colossians chapter two tells us that on the cross, Jesus disarmed our enemy. That means Jesus walked up to Satan and he grabbed his weapon and he threw it on the ground and he stamped on it. He said, you can't accuse them anymore. Because when you stand before God in that heavenly courtroom and Satan comes and he starts to accuse you of all the things that you've done, Jesus steps in front and says, yes, I've paid for that. 
I've, I've paid for that and I've paid for that. I offered full and total propitiation on the cross and I cried out, it is finished so that if you are in Christ, there's no more condemnation for you. I, uh, I read a story that I think illustrates this really well. So in, in 1949, and one of the deadliest forest fires in, in American history broke out in Mangulch, Montana. And 16 firefighters dropped in to try to fight, fight this fire. And uh, while they were fighting it, the wind changed real suddenly. And the fire consumed 3,000 football fields with worth of land in under 10 minutes in their direction. And it cut off their escape. So there's this huge raging fire in front of them and there was this massive sheer cliff behind them and they were, they were trapped. And so 13 of the 16 firefighters thought the only way out of this situation is I've got to climb. I've got to climb that, that wall. And tragically, none that tried to climb the wall survived. But there was one firefighter named Wagner Dodge who did something different. When the fire was about a minute from where he was, he reached out into his pack, he got out some matches and he set the grass around him on fire and it was dry. And so the just went, went right up and the fire that he started consumed this huge area of grass. And so about a minute later, when, when the wrath of the forest fire got to him, it, it didn't have any fuel left. There was no grass to burn up. And so it, it went around his position. And so he, Wagner, and two of his friends stepped into this already burned over place and the rage of the forest fire encircled them and moved on and they survived. The cross of Jesus Christ is the already burned over place. It is the place where the wrath of God has already fallen. It has already been satisfied. And so if by faith you step into the, the already burned over place, you are safe. And if by faith you repent and believe and say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior, the scriptures say that you'll be cleansed of your sin and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead will begin to work in your life. And so the question for you this morning is, have you stepped into the already burned over place? Or are you trying to climb the wall through moral performance? If you've never stepped into that place, I'm gonna give you the opportunity to do that this morning. If you'd bow your heads with me, I just wanna tell you how you can become a follower of Jesus. If the Spirit of God is prompting you right now and you know, I, I never have, I need to personally step into that burned over place. You could simply pray a, a prayer of faith from your heart that sounds like this, Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner and that I deserve your wrath. But I believe that on the cross, Jesus satisfied all of your wrath against me and that it counted for me. I accept your free gift of salvation and I commit to following Jesus as Savior and Lord. The scriptures say that if you pray that prayer from a genuine heart, you will be saved. And if you need to do that this morning, I wanna encourage you to do so. Don't leave here this morning outside of the safe place of Christ. And now with heads bowed and eyes closed, I wanna ask you to do something. In just a moment, I'm gonna count to three. And if today you have prayed to receive Christ, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand boldly. I mean, lock that elbow for two reasons. Number one, we wanna know who we're praying for. Number two, I believe that something solidifies in us spiritually when we respond publicly. So on the count of three, man, if that's you, I'm gonna ask you to raise that arm. One, God loves you. Two, Jesus died to pay for your sins. Three, put those hands up. Lock that arm, get them up. 
Father God, I'm coming home. Lord God, I pray for all those with hands raised. I pray that they would know the steadfast love of God for them. I pray that they would know that as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed their transgressions from them. I pray that they would see in the cross your love and your grace and your mercy and also your trustworthiness. And they would know you are a trustworthy God who they can follow, that you don't want bad for them, you want good for them. Lord, I pray for all those here who have stepped into that burned over place before, but have been living like they're in last week, have been living like they have to climb that wall, that they would lay that down today and they would walk in the freedom of a child of God. Lord God, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for Easter, for all these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen, amen.